So uh, with a smaller group today, I think feel free to jump in, add comments, ask questions. Um, it it's, can sometimes be easier to have some interesting discussions, depending on what comes up with a bit of a smaller group. So feel free. Um, yeah, let's jump in. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 1. Paul had just been talking about how, in the end of chapter 2, some people peddle the gospel for money. But he says, we're preaching this insincerity. And so he begins here, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? He's like, you know, we're not trying to just take all the credit here and like boast about this. Oh, or do we need like some letters of recommendation to you or from you? It seems like probably these other gospel peddlers were trying to like accumulate letters of recommendation from churches or to them be like, hey, you should let me preach. You should pay me pretty good. I'm an awesome preacher guy. And Paul's like, that's what we're about. This isn't like a popularity contest. Um, he says, it's not these uh, pieces of paper of recommendation we've accumulated. Because he says, like the proof is in the pudding. He says, verse 2, you yourselves are our letter. That is like a letter of recommendation um, written on our hearts. He's like, you're loved, we're, you're loved of us and known of, and read by everyone. He's almost saying like my fruit as a gospel minister is seen in you guys. In lives that have been transformed. And everyone that's engaged in ministry wants to see fruit in changed lives. And you can think you're an amazing preacher, but you really want to see lives being changed. It's not just the external things, but uh, hearts being changed so that everyone can read it. Everyone sees. Like, these are people that God is working in. And he says, you're not just a letter... You're not just as a body a letter of recommendation kind of of us, but he actually says, verse 3, you show that you are Christ's letter. He's like, you as a church are something Christ has written, a letter that Christ has written. And he says, it's been delivered by us, but not written with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. So he says, Christ has written you as a letter by the spirit, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human heart. So if you put those three thoughts together, he says, you are Christ's letter written with the spirit on the human heart. Yeah. That just struck me. That kind of pertains to us too. If, if what's written on our heart is known and read by everyone, mm-hmm. we better be careful that we portray it rightly. Mm-hmm. That we don't give a false message. Exactly, and that's exactly where I wanted to go with this. It's just the thought of like, <laughs> no, that's perfect. Uh, that means we're going in the right direction together. Is that we as a church are Christ's letter, a letter to the world. And just as like God's given us, he's given the scriptures to his people, but people in the world will probably read us sooner than they'll read the scriptures. And like we see in John, it's like they'll know you're Christians by your love and our lifestyle if Christ is written on our hearts with his spirit, ought to reflect something of what Christ would say to this world, of what Christ would say about how he would have his people live, about how he would have us behave. And to think of that we are almost like a writing, and what does our life say about God to the people we work with, to our family members? Um, They're reading us. They're reading of life, and are we a poor reflection of Christ or a good reflection? Because... For better or worse, Christ would have his people be kind of the front lines of his message to the world. And hopefully that we see it. Exactly. And though they see our failings, hopefully we can then bring the word of God and show it's like, we're not perfect, but we've seen something of truth, something of beauty in Christ, something of a joyous way to live.
And yeah, it's our religion does have to go all the way to the heart. It's not just these ex- external rites and traditions, but it's a changed heart by the Spirit of God. And so then Paul can say, verse 4, such is the confidence we have through Christ before God. I think he's saying there, uh, we have confidence that you are genuine because God has actually done a spiritual work in your heart. And he's saying it's not that we're competent to claim anything as coming from ourselves. So even though you're a letter of recommendation, we don't really get the credit for your Christ-likeness, for your being a church of worshipers. Uh, he says we, we, aren't, we can't claim anything. We get no credit. We don't get the boasting for the work. But like, this, is, this would be almost you could imagine Pastor Mike saying, Grace Fellowship's doing well. I don't get the credit for it. Um, I've sought to be used of the Lord, but it's the Spirit's work. It's the God's work uh, building up the church because no person has the adequacy to actually change hearts and write the Spirit of God on a heart. But the confidence then comes. He says our adequacy is from God. And I think this this is a good reminder for all of us as we want to minister to one another or maybe as parents you want to minister to your children Um, You as parents aren't sufficient to save your children. You're not sufficient to imbue godliness in them. And so whether it's our home ministry or ministry with friends or our ministry, whether it's Sunday school or what it would be, um, we don't have to fear for our lack of skill when we feel like we're incompetent. And we also can't have pride in like, I'm doing this really well, I'm teaching this class or whatever, because... All the adequacy is of God. And we're really probably going to be as effective as we are dependent on the Holy Spirit to do the work. And if we get proud that even in, as a church here, that like we're doing pretty well. Like we've got good numbers. Our church is rocking. We're like vibrant. We're like a cool church, whatever the case may be. And if we're not dependent on God to change and sustain and grow, we're just then doing it in the flesh and we're forgetting that we are not competent in and of ourselves for anything but our adequacies from God. Amen? Amen. Can we remember that? Because uh, he has made us competent to be ministers of the new covenant. And although um, the idea of being a minister of the new co- covenant would have a very, that would have a more narrow application to Paul and gospel ministers, people who've been ordained, there is a sense in which we're all called to be people who minister to others based on the gospel grace that we find in the new covenant. Um, Okay, so this next section here, I want us to spend a bit of time on verses halfway through 6 to 11. And so what Paul does here is he is going to give us a number of compare and contrasts of the old covenant with the new covenant, or the Old Testament with the New Testament. And there are some interesting things for us to learn. And if there's anything you have a thought on that you want to discuss, I think this could be um, an interesting section. So um, let's just look at these all together and then discuss it in whole. So he's talking about this is the new covenant ministry. He says first, uh, halfway through verse 6, he says, Our ministry is not of the letter, but of the spirit. Uh, most commentators agree you could say they're not of the law, but of the gospel. It's a similar idea. For the letter kills, okay, here's the first contrast, the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Verse 7, now if the ministry that brought death, okay, here's another one, chiseled in letters of stones, probably a reference to God giving the law on Mount Sinai, the ministry of death, it was a glory such that 
the Israelites were not able to gaze steadily at Moses' face because of its glory. So, like, if you remember in that story, Moses comes down from the mountain after meeting with God, and he's shining. And his face is so bright and glorious and shining that he has to wear a veil because it was too much for the Israelites to handle. So he's saying, this old covenant did come with glory. Like, Moses' face shone so bright, people couldn't look at it. But he says, this is a glory that was set aside. So if this ministry of death, though a glorious ministry, is set aside, verse 8, how will the ministry of the Spirit, okay, he's contrasting death versus Spirit here. The ministry of death, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? Okay, that's the second contrast, death versus Spirit. Verse 9, if the ministry that brought condemnation had glory, the ministry that brings righteousness. Okay, third contrast, condemnation versus righteousness. It overflows with even more glory. In fact, what had been glorious is now not glorious by comparison. So the old covenant, it was glorious, but compared to the new covenant, it doesn't even look glorious anymore because of the surpassing glory. For if what was, last contrast, set aside was glorious, what endures will be more glorious. So here's the, uh, the contrast he gave us was the letter that kills versus the spirit that gives life, the ministry of death versus the ministry of the spirit, the ministry of condemnation versus the ministry of righteousness, and what was set aside versus what is enduring. And we could probably summarize and say what was glorious, but what is much more glorious. Okay, you guys following? Comparing the old and new covenants. And so here is my hunch about the way I think most of us interpret this and I think miss out on the, uh, the fuller idea of what it's saying. So our, our natural way to think of this is that if we're just focused on the law and keeping the law um, and that's how we're trying to establish our righteousness before God, that's just going to be death in us. Uh, we can think of like a Martin Luther trying to perfectly keep God's commands and just found himself totally empty. And so we would say focusing on the law brings death. And if you're just focusing on the law, it'll just be death in you. And we need to then say, no, cast that aside. We're not about that anymore. We're just about the gospel and grace and rejoicing in Christ and what he's accomplished for us. I think that's the way we naturally think of this. Do you guys agree? Somewhat, maybe, maybe you haven't thought of it. Um, and I want to say that is right to an extent. Um, I think that's right to an extent. But I think there, that is the secondary thing we want to notice in here. I think the first thing we want to notice is the context is he's talking about his ministry, his new covenant ministry. Um, how him as a pastor is going to be ministering God's grace to people versus how God's grace was ministered in the Old Testament. So you could almost compare Paul as a, say, pastor to an Old Testament priest. And I think the primary contrast being talked about here is not necessarily just law-keeping versus gospel-keeping, but the whole Old Testament system. Um, in our confession talks about God's covenant of grace, its administrations are different. So people have only ever been saved by faith in Christ and by regeneration by the Spirit of God. But the, that gracious ministry in the Old Testament was administered through temples and sacrifices and priests and veils and washings and blood. 
and all these ornate, burdensome, ritualistic, external things. And even though Christ was foreshadowed in those things, right? Like we know the Passover lamb speaks of Christ, and really everything about that in some way speaks of Christ. It was very shadowy. It was very unclear to most people how this actually led to redemption and grace and atonement. So I think primarily when he's talking about this, this death-giving, condemning Old Testament ministry, which where we could think administration, he's looking at a people who think, if you didn't live near Jerusalem, you don't even get to go to the temple and see sacrifices. You don't get to see the incense rise. Everything tells you how far away you are from God. You're not a priest. You can't even enter the temple if you go to Jerusalem. Not even all the priests can enter the holy place where God's presence actually is. Um, you, you're always feeling like you're on the outside. And the pictures, the pictures you get are pictures of animals bleeding and dying. And like literally blood flowing in troughs because of the amount of death. Um, the whole ministry, uh, what you can eat and not eat, what you can touch and not touch... This all just is talking about your defilement, your separation from God. Are you guys following? And he's saying now, the new covenant ministry, we aren't caught up in all that ritual that only speaks to us of our distance from God. Our, the new covenant is ministered in spirit and truth, in simplicity, like what we did this morning. A little bit of wine, a little bit of bread. We sing, we pray. We hear God's word. It's simple, and Christ is held forth so clearly. Christ is spotlighted so clearly. So it's almost as if before, the Old Testament saints, they couldn't perceive Christ in it. And we're going to see this a bit later on. It says they were veiled. They didn't largely, some did, but they largely didn't see how all these things pointed forward to a redeemer and a savior, a final priest. And so it's almost like they were walking in the dark. They were walking in the dark and you bump around. And now with the new covenant, the light has shone on Christ who fulfills all these Old Testament ceremonies. And the contrast of that simple light to this shadowy ritual is I think the primary thing in view when he's comparing the old covenant and the new covenant. Comparing their administration. So that's, that's what I think. Uh, I don't have to be, um, I may not be 100% right on the order. So I'd say that's first, primary. Secondary then is the law keeping. Uh, before I keep going, any, any comments, thoughts, questions on that? Well, I think it's very helpful. Um, there's probably no question that's more difficult for us who may not to find, find that distinction between the old covenant and the new covenant. Mm-hmm. Uh, let alone the operation of the spirit mm-hmm. in the old covenant and the new covenant. But so I appreciate the statement that we're all saved by faith. We were always all saved by faith through the working of the Spirit. Um, just a question, maybe just a clarity, not, not, mm-hmm. not anything you said. Um, do you think there was also, even though it was veiled, um, for some, so I, I think I heard you say two things. One, uh, it wasn't you know, the, the closeness wasn't there. So, in a sense, we're closer. Mm-hmm. And that's one. But then the other is this um, experience of mm-hmm. 
be closely connected, but experience of you know, seeing the sacrifice. Once a year they went. Mm -hmm. sacrifice. Um, how, how much do you think they understood some of the meaning of forgiveness? Mm. I think so. I think my, my thought on that, I think sometimes more than we give them credit for. Um, like definitely we see in David, like Psalm 32, Psalm 51, a very clear understanding that sins are covered through God's grace and forgiveness. Uh, so I do think forgiveness was seen as offered through them. But I, I think the thing that was largely missing was understanding the mechanism by which that happens. Like I think the idea that this is coming through a future Messiah is often missing. It's just, well, God's character is forgiving, therefore he forgives. And so I think, I think they would have been consistently bumping up the problem of how can God be just and forgive mm -hmm. sinners, which is the problem then that Romans 3 talks about, that God, in a sense, passed over the sins of the Old Testament because they weren't paid for in Christ until Christ paid for them. And it's now that Christ has actually paid for them God's actually just to have forgiven because those sins are now paid for in the future. So it's been suggested that even Isaiah, when he came home, uh, given day after prophesying, uh, when, when he was asked, what did you preach today? He would tell his wife, but she's... But then he would, she would say, well, what does that mean? And he said, well, I'm not sure. Hmm. But the sense that he didn't really understand uh, that he was speaking about someday... Uh, Son would be born. Right. Uh, yet Zechariah in the temple said, "Now my eyes have seen." Mm -hmm. And so I wonder if you know this disparity between people mm -hmm. is some understood more than others mm -hmm. of what this actual right meant and how it was right. fulfilled. Right. Right. I mean, I think it's a huge dilemma. Maybe it's not critical, but but in you know this. Graciousness of God, it was there. Mm -hmm. It was there in the garden. Yeah. They accepted it. And, and by faith, Adam and Eve were saved. Yeah. In the, in the substitutionary death. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think there's, so there's actually, with the prophecy, there's actually, that's actually a really big debate in theological circles is how much did the prophets know about what they were saying? Um, and I, I think it's Walter Kaiser he argues really strongly that they really knew what they were prophesying about with the Messiah. They, like, knew almost as much as we did. And other people say, no, they didn't really know anything, and because the Holy Spirit inspired them, um, the Holy Spirit put things in their words that they had no idea about that we can step back and see. And the truth is probably somewhere in the middle, I think, that they, like, I don't think Isaiah was ignorant when he's writing Isaiah 53 that this is a Messiah coming to bear the sins of God's people. And even all the way back to Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. And I think um, the gospel can be simplified to the barest kernel. And that gospel would have been sufficient for someone to be saved by um, Adam and Eve's kids. Just to believe that God would send one to crush the enemy. That's all they needed to believe. And God's revealed to us more, so we get to see, I think, more beauty in it, more glory in it, more brightness. So I think what God had revealed in the Old Testament to the people was sufficient understanding of they need to have their sins forgiven, there needs to be some sort of sacrifice, 
and God's gracious, but they don't get that clarity that we get. We're all, like a, a child in our church understands more about the gospel than probably the priests did in the Old Testament because of the light that's shone in Christ. So those would be some of my thoughts. Yeah, any, do you have any other thoughts, anything to add on that? I just think it's one of the hardest concepts in the whole Bible, really, hmm. is Old Testament, New Testament. Hmm. And I don't mean to bring out the subject, but I would just add the, the powerful working of the Spirit in the Old Testament, mm-hmm. which is a topic maybe someday we would you know, touch yeah. on. Uh, the, the distinguishing marks of uh, the work of the Spirit. Right. Hmm. But there's just something that, that just gnaws at me. Uh, because, you know, in faith, you must also believe that your sins are forgiven. I understand it's veiled in the Old Testament, but that's part of it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, how does Enoch walk with God and, mm-hmm. uh, without having that assurance? Right. Uh, so he must have put two and two together, as it were. Right. That the sacrifice was sufficient. Yeah. Abel's sacrifice. Yeah. So, so I see it as more... Yeah, maybe some more or less. We have that today, right? Maybe yeah. Some of us, the basic, as you said, um, uh, we we understand it and we grow it. Mm-hmm. So so there's enough in the beginning, but then there's much more to cherish and enjoy. Right. Yeah, and like sacrifice pops up right away, <laughs> like almost unspeakably. All of a sudden, they're sacrificing. Yeah, Chris. And I think you know, you look at the other hand. It's something we fight even today. There's always something trying to put a cloud and shield us from what we're supposed to be mm-hmm. looking at, even in the sacrifice of Christ. You know, the, the church that we read all the way through the New Testament is fighting Judaizers. It's not looking at Christ. Look at this. You know, so I guess I'll keep it real short in saying I think. No matter what period you're in, there was always something put forth by the devil to try to mm. shift the focus away right. from where it needed to be. Right. And even today, we fight that. Right. Like, look what happened to the church in the Middle Ages. Ritual comes in the Catholic Church, increasing ritual, increasing ceremony. And what happens? The gospel just gets more obscured, more obscured, more obscured, till it's basically back in Judaism, shadowy types and figures with maybe some understanding of forgiveness, and then God needs to shine the light of the gospel and the Reformation back to the simplicity, the clarity of the gospel. I think this is a constant temptation for us to guard against that Christ doesn't get eclipsed with other things. I would just say that I'm thankful this morning to think about that Old Testament sacrifice tied in with the word of the ministry. Hmm. Uh, The ministering. And I I could have read that many times, but it's never really been in my place hmm. to think about it in the, the distinguishing word of ministry. Right. Administration of the picture of salvation. Hmm. So that's very helpful. Hmm. And that's where, as Christians, we can, uh, New Testament saints, we can derive a lot more benefit from the Old Testament because we see how things can be fulfilled in Christ. And we see how these things are all pointing forward to him. And so I think kind of with this, I think a thing we need to remember is that the Old Testament ministry was glorious. Um, it, we, we do have a tendency to just totally negate it as being like it was kind of a bad idea. But it was glorious. God did give the gospel. Um, Hebrews 4 says the gospel was preached to Israel in the wilderness as well as to us. So they did have the gospel, but not the clarity and the detail and the richness of the gospel that we see manifested in Christ when Christ fulfills the law. In fact, as he says about Abraham, right? The gospel was preached beforehand to mm-hmm. Abraham. Yeah. So, you know, you have so many people thinking Abraham was chosen because he was a pretty good guy. Right? Yeah. 
But that's not how it happened. Right. And uh, even the gospel preached beforehand. So yeah. that's been striking to me over the years to think about what, what okay, so now finish the sentence. What did you tell Abraham? Yeah, exactly. It's the gospel. But what kind of gospel? Yeah, we'd love to know those details, hey? Like, what more did God say to the Old Testament saints that we don't know? Like, who knows? But it's interesting to think of. Um, so with this, okay, if we're, if we're saying the, the main thing in focus here is Old Testament administration versus New Testament administration, I do think this law component is still important. So uh, this was, uh, the, how the law works for us as Christians was a debate in the Reformation times. Um, it's been overblown a bit, but particularly between the Lutherans and the Calvinists. So what, what, uh, kind of what we're saying with Luther, who was so convicted by sin that his perspective was very much that the law just really drives us to despair. The law just beats us down. And therefore, we just need the gospel to build us up and give us peace. But after that, he, he, he didn't have that high, a very high view of the law's continuing place in our Christian life. Because he said, the law mainly just beats us down to drive us to Christ. But Calvin, he had a different emphasis. And in our Reformed tradition, our emphasis is more that, yes, this is true that the law um, beats us down, can, shows us our sin, and drives us to Christ. Almost like it's a, it's a whip at our heels, kind of a picture in Galatians, driving us to Christ. But then once we're in Christ, the law that once drove us becomes, that whip, as it were, becomes like a staff that leads us in front of us, saying, here is the way, walk in it. Here is the way to a fruitful life, to a joyful life, because sin leads to unhappiness and death and destruction. And so now, um, Julie and I were trying to brainstorm an illustration of this, uh, but the best we could come up with was um, th- there's a, a good ordering of things. So if, if the law is like your shoes and the gospel is like your socks, uh, you don't want to be putting on your shoes before your socks and then your socks over top. Um, if you put, try to put your socks over top of your shoes, you'll just slip, probably not go anywhere, and your feet will chafe and be stinky. But if you get the order right and realize, ah, me trying to put on my shoes without socks reminds me that I need to put on the socks. So the gospel is like, um, it's our comfort and warmth and security, and we first cover ourselves with the gospel, remembering who we are in Christ and uh, God's love for us, and then so we have a warmth and security, and then the law comes after that and says, hey, I can help you walk through a dangerous gravel road. Um, When we keep God's commands, it keeps us from snares, and it keeps us from self-inflicted pain, because God's uh, law comes after the gospel to help us walk the Christian life. Does that work for you guys? So it's actually, it's really useful, and it's a real good gift of God to us that he actually tells us good ways to live. Um, for me, it's always been a little confusing about what laws from the Old Testament, <clears throat> I guess you have the Ten Commandments, but then there's a lot of ceremonial laws, and maybe I just need to study more, but it's, it's always been confusing what laws we're supposed to keep and which we are not, because in Christ we have a new law. Mm-hmm. The law of freedom and liberty. Um, so, I don't know, maybe you speak that. And even in the Ten Commandments, like the uh, um, honor or the keep the Sabbath day, has, mm-hmm. you know, even now we don't know if we're supposed to keep 100% or whatever. I mean, yeah. we have a different 
Testament now? Yeah, that's a uh, very important question. And it's one I, when I was trying to understand Reformed theology, I really wrestled with because there's a really popular view today. Um, we don't have to go into the details, but a lot of really popular speakers that we like, like uh, John Piper or Matt Chandler, Don Carson, a lot of these guys, um, there's a very prominent view in even semi-Reformed circles that says that we only keep in the Old Testament what's explicitly repeated in the New Testament. Uh, so they say we live by the new law only. And practically what that means for them is that largely they just disregard keeping the Lord's Day, keeping the Sabbath, because they say we don't see that explicitly repeated in the New Testament. Um, that's not the Reformed view that we hold in the OPC. So the way we see it in the OPC and these sorts of churches is that in the Old Testament you have three different types of laws. You have ceremonial laws, which relate to everything we talked about. Temples, Levites, priests, sacrifices, ritual. Then you have, and those are fulfilled in Christ. So totally done away with, totally fulfilled in Christ. Then secondly, you have judicial laws, which were the civil laws of the nation that God gave to Israel as a nation. So because God's people were a political nation, he gave them a political law book to follow and apply. And our confession says that, that those laws expired together with, um, with the Jewish people. That because we're no longer a nation, we, we don't have national laws from God. But it says, the moral law is what abides forever. And the moral law we see expressed in the Ten Commandments. But here's how, here's how I think this, this is what helped make this sense to me. Um, I was reading this one systematic theology, and um, John Frame was arguing, saying... You can find the seeds of all Ten Commandments in the Garden of Eden. You find um, a picture of them there. And because God's character never changes, God's moral law never changes throughout history. So God's law and rule for mankind was the same in the Garden of Eden um, to Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve had God's laws. We have pictures of marriage, of property, of truth, um, of covetousness. You can see these seeds there. And then what happens at the Ten with, in Sinai at the Ten Commandments, we see a particular application of these of God's moral law to the people of Israel. So, for instance, with the Lord's Day, we see in Genesis 2, he says, God sanctified the seventh day and set it apart. So right at the beginning, we have a holy day that the Lord says, one day in seven is a holy day for me. And he instituted that before there was toil and labor, which means that it's not a day just for physical rest, it's a day for worship, primarily. Um, Ten Commandments, though, he's saying, you keep the Sabbath because I delivered you from Egypt. Um, God didn't deliver us from Egypt literally, so that's a particular application of that to Israel, um, and servants, and oxen, and goats, whatever. But then, that application of that put to Israel, we jump now to the New Testament, and all those things from God's moral law, they still apply to us, though the um, application of them might be a little different. We uh, worship God on the first day of the week instead of the seventh day of the week. There's some change in circumstance, but that moral law, we'd say, applies forever, um, which is particularly found in the Ten Commandments. So that's the long, short answer to that. And we do need to wrap up pretty quick, but yeah. It's still love God above all, love your neighbors yourself. Right, and that's the, summoner, the summary of the law. The first four commandments, love God. The last six commandments, love your neighbor. Um, and so, yes, we're under the law of love, and love is defined by God's commandments. 
Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And um, I think we all need to stop there. But um, that said, God's law is a gracious gift to us. And um, we're far beyond just the bare Ten Commandments. It goes right down to our heart. It goes all the way to our thoughts and our character. And um, we are not focused on just a bare, bare external application. We want a life transformed into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we're after. And God works that in our new covenant ministry, word, spirit, in this beautiful gospel simplicity that we get. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the new covenant. We thank you that we can see Christ so clearly, even as we saw in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper this morning, that his blood was shed for us. His body was broken for us. And he died to take our sin, to bear our shame, and that we might have his righteousness and be resurrected one day as he was resurrected. Um, In truth, Lord, we are raised up with him even now in the spirit. And Lord, we ask that we will be more and more like Christ every day and that we would behold the gospel and behold Christ's glory in it and be transformed into that same image from glory to glory. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.